Welcome to the Benton Heights Presbyterian Church Podcast. We're excited you've joined us as we hear what God has to say to us through Scripture and this message from Pastor Paul. This is our next to last sermon on the letter of Paul to the Colossians. He writes to this young church encouraging them as he himself is in prison. And we've been studying this letter verse by verse, and we're coming to the end of chapter 3 and the very first verse of chapter 4 today. So this is the Bible. It is our textbook, our life book for us as individuals, for us as a church. But I'll be honest with you, not everybody likes this book. There are critics There are opponents who will find fault with it because they see as its central teaching something that is outdated, something that is offensive. What happens is they will go to some of the most controversial sections of this book and read it out of context and find there the opportunity to criticize and dismiss and disregard God's Word. One of the themes that is most often chosen for criticism and opposition are those passages that deal with slavery. Here's where we find ourselves. We're in the book of Colossians. In other words, we're in God's Word, and the topic of slavery comes up. And the question is, what does God have to say about the institution of slavery that existed in history and in still parts of the world today still exists? Well, we've got options. We can ignore the Bible. We can edit the Bible. We can apologize for the Bible. Or we can study God's Word for a clear hearing so that our minds can consider exactly what Scripture says and doesn't say. When we get into this issue of slavery in Colossians 3, some of the translations will say that actual word slave, some will say bondservant. And by way of preface, let me make this concession, that any time we come to that theme in the Bible, It immediately makes us feel uncomfortable because we're looking at it through the lens of American history. We can't help but think of our national experience. And that part of the history of our nation is one of the most shameful and painful parts. Know that the Bible was written long before the United States had history. The idea of enslaving dates back to the Old Testament times and certainly is spoken of often in the New Testament as well. Let me hit American slavery first, and it says this in 1 Timothy chapter 1. This, by the way, the Apostle Paul wrote, the same man who wrote Colossians, he says this, we also know that the law That is God's Word, God's truth, God's decrees, God's demands. It's made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for people who do evil, who do wrong, for people who willingly break God's law because they don't honor it. Well, what kind of examples would Paul give among that list? Slave traders, 
and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. That word means healthy, that when you understand the Bible, you get healthy emotionally, physically, relationally, spiritually. That you become a life-giving person and the life of God goes in you and comes out of you, enabling you to love others and live in harmony with them. So here's what Paul has to say in 1 Timothy, that one of the grossest of sins is slave trading. Seems pretty clear, right? Slave trading is when you take somebody who is free, make them captive, make them the property of someone. They're considered part of their estate. So they can be bought, sold, traded. That's slave trading and exactly what happened in the history of our country. So let me be as clear as I possibly can. This is immoral, ungodly, unjust, sinful, evil, and inexcusable. Very different from the context of the Old Testament and the ancient Roman practices which are the context in which Paul is writing. With American slavery, it was almost entirely, exclusively racial, and that's evil. You can't arrive at any other conclusion from reading the Bible because the Bible says that there is God, there are people made in His image, and there are animals that people are to rule over. Compare and contrast that with evolutionary thinking. Evolutionary thinking is that there are animals and there are higher evolved animals that are referred to as human beings. Therefore, there is this continuum between animal and human and some people are less evolved, therefore they are less fully human. Evolutionary thinking leads to bigotry and discrimination because certain people are less fit, less evolved, less human, and as a result, certain people have less rights and are less regarded. The Bible doesn't show us that. In fact, the teaching of the Bible is that we are created equally, and it increases the capacity for us to love and have unity with different people groups. It's God's Word that sets us free to really value and love one another. This is that kingdom thinking that turns culture upside down. Because all people, all tribes, all nations, all tongues will gather around Jesus. He will be king and there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Now, you may be thinking, okay, Yes, that was in our nation's past. We're also talking biblical times. That was a long time ago. That's ancient times. Primitive people with primitive thinking. We aren't treating people that way anymore, right? I wish that were true. I'll give you two examples from our culture. Today's cultural equivalent of taking people captive is human trafficking. It's a multi-billion dollar a year industry. And today's cultural equivalent to having no legal standing under the law are the unborn. They are treated as property to be discarded and their lives even taken. 
So you and I have no moral high ground. We just have a different group of people that we give no rights to. They had a problem back then. We have a problem now because the heart is sinful and deceitful and wicked. So that is focused on American slavery. I want to compare and contrast that with the biblical understanding. Again, hear from the Apostle Paul, this time as he writes to the Corinthians, when he says, were you a slave when you were called? In other words, when you became a believer. He says, if you can gain your freedom, do so. In other words, if you can change your status, do it. Two verses later, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of human beings. So if you are free, don't become enslaved. Now, how does someone become enslaved? How does someone become a bond servant? For us, we're going to have to go back 2,000 years culturally. In the ancient Roman Empire, the most powerful empire in the world, the major way that someone became enslaved was through indebtedness. Same held true in the Old Testament. Yes, there were, there were times that it was beyond just indebtedness. There were times when uh, people were taken captive in, in war and they were made slaves. But the major way, and this is the context in which Paul is writing, the major way that someone became enslaved was through indebtedness. It was bankruptcy. In our day, when you declare bankruptcy, you still have to pay off at least a portion of that debt. Well, in that day, what would happen? Well, you'd want to start a business. You want to buy a home. You don't just go to the community bank. What you would do is find somebody of means, somebody with resources, and you negotiate a deal. What happens if you default on that deal? Well, you can't pay it back. What do you do? You work for them. You become a slave. You become a bond servant, and you'll say, you know, hey, I'll do this six years, eight years, ten years. It's, it's paying back the debt. You may be thinking, well, why did Paul feel the need to address this in the first place? I mean, how many people fit into this category, right? In his day, we're actually talking a large number of people. The ancient historians say that in the Roman Empire, somewhere between one-third and one-half of all people were in the category of slaves. To be sure, some were treated very harshly very ruthlessly. For others, it was an agreement that they had entered into. Here's also how it differed with American slavery. In biblical times, it was not primarily racial. In fact, all races were slaves and all races had slaves. As a slave, you had little to no legal rights, but oftentimes, This was not a lifetime service. Many were emancipated. Some, they were able to work off their debt. They and their family had come to live, and I'm going to work for you for X number of years, and that'll pay it off, right? And then we're free to go. In in other cases, maybe the debt was so large, or you heard in the Levitical uh, text that sometimes they just had to sell themselves into slavery. What could you do? Well, if you can't pay it back, but one of your family members could, and they could come to your rescue, the word that was used for somebody who bought your freedom, 
was Redeemer. Makes a lot of sense when you think about what Jesus has done for us, how He has bought our freedom, our freedom from sin, our freedom from being a slave to sin and Satan and everything that He would have against us. Well, that's the Redeemer. Also, there were church leaders who were slaves. Probably the most famous was a gentleman by the name of Onesimus, who is mentioned a couple of times in the New Testament. Paul writes concerning him in an entire letter to Philemon, a very short letter. So to those who would say the Bible is bigoted, outdated, and shouldn't it speak against slavery, don't understand its context. And let me say this, the Bible doesn't condone it. It's just telling people how to live under it. For instance, let's say today we personally know of Christians living in China or North Korea or Iran, and we know they're being persecuted. We would write to them to encourage them under those conditions how to be faithful to God in an unjust political environment. That doesn't mean we're endorsing what's happening to them. It means today, that's the reality. And tomorrow, that's going to be the reality. And we want to have them love and serve God faithfully in that context. So now we find ourselves at Colossians 3. It took me a while to get there. But you understand, I had to lay the background to set the stage. Now, is there a cultural equivalency when we go from the biblical imagery of slavery to today, 2,000 years later? The closest, it's not perfect, but the closest parallel would be the workforce because in the workforce, there is a boss, there is an employee. So what the Apostle Paul is going to say in Colossians 3, if you want to make a practical application to your life and mine, it's the master is management, the servant is the employee, that would be today's equivalent. Here's what he has to say. Slaves... Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not the human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. What he's saying is if you're a Christian, your work is part of your worship. Worship is not just what you do on Sunday mornings at church. It's what you do every day at work. Some of you, though it should be all of you, should wonder, well, how can I be a witness at work? A lot of that is how you carry yourself at work. Are you honest? Do you do your work with integrity? Are you hardworking? Do you show compassion for those around you? If, you? if they know that you belong to the Lord Jesus, your work is part of your worship. Your work is part of your witness. And here, Paul gives some aspects of Christian work. Number one, he talks about our heart. To do that work with sincerity of heart, he says. Think about this. We worship a God who had a job. Jesus Christ 
is God. God becomes a man, and the first 30 years of his life, he's working as a, a carpenter. Not a whole lot of prestige with that. In other words, he's not a politician. He's not sitting on a throne. He's not serving as a high priest going into the Holy of Holies in the temple. He doesn't run a large company and make a huge income for the first 30 years. God is a construction worker. He goes to work with his dad, his adoptive dad, Joseph. No doubt he worked very hard. No doubt his work was perfect. I'll grant that. But how many of you, if you were God, you would not want that job? You're like, I'm not going to go to Monroe, North Carolina and work as a laborer. If it were me, if I were God, I would come on a chariot with gold rims and a license plate that says, that's right, I'm God. (laughs) And somebody would be running alongside feeding me Oreos. (laughs) But that's not how Jesus does it. Jesus shows up and he goes to work. So whenever we think about work, we have to look at Jesus. And Paul says, do that work with sincerity of heart. How many of you have gone to a job and maybe you have one now that you, your heart's not in it? Then you either need a heart change or a job change. Either get a new attitude or get a new job. Jesus, when he started his ministry, he had some guys who worked with him, worked for him. One of those guys did not have sincerity of heart. I'm speaking of Judas Iscariot. What did he do? He stole from Jesus. He was the bookkeeper. And for the whole of Jesus' ministry, Judas was stealing from him. Judas is supposed to be helping Jesus accomplish his mission. All that Judas does is help himself. He doesn't have sincerity of heart. He has selfishness of heart. He was not looking out for the well-being of the whole group. He was only concerned about himself. You and I are supposed to have a heart with sincerity of heart like Jesus, not selfishness of heart like Judas. In addition to the heart aspect of work, there's the mention of, I guess we could say from our head and our hands, that you do your work out of reverence for the Lord as if you're working for the Lord, not for human masters. Here's the thing. Every organization has an organizational chart. Someone is at the top of that chart. And as a Christian, we say, well, actually, above that chart is another chart, and Jesus rules over all. That means that my boss's boss is Jesus. So even if I have a hard time working for my boss, I can work for my boss's boss. Now, your company probably doesn't have a chart with Jesus at the top of it, but in your mind, Jesus is at the top. Think of it this way. Someone else may sign my paycheck, but I work for Jesus, so I want to do a good job because I have a good master. So all of this has been about godly living under authority. Finally, in our text, Paul has commands for those who are in authority. 
As we've looked through Colossians chapter 3, we spent a whole week on the husband and wife relationship. The next week was on parent and child, and now we get to this one, employer-employee. In every single case, Paul, God speaking through Paul, has something to say to both sides, both partners, if you will. So that way, it's not just speaking to one and saying, well, you need to do this and this and this, and the other one could be in a more domineering role then and say, well, look, you're supposed to do this and you're not doing it. So Paul speaks to both sides because God has rights and responsibilities for all categories. So here he's now going to talk to those who are in authority. We step into chapter 4, verse 1, and he writes this, Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Let's put you in the category of master. Let's see if any of these are true for you. In the company, you're the owner, the CEO, the CFO. You're in legal. You're in management. You're the master. In other words, you make decisions that people have to live by, and they don't get to make decisions. If you're in the military, the police department, the fire department, and you're a commanding officer, you're in the master role. If you're in school as a teacher, a principal, an administrator, you're the master and the students are under your authority. In the church, if you're a leader, you make decisions that impact and affect other people. If in sports you're the coach, you're the master. If you're a parent, that means you have a child or children, you are in that master role. And what does God have to say to those of us who are in authority? Well, two commands specifically here. Number one, provide for those who are under you with what is right. Again, New Testament culture. Slaves didn't have legal rights. And Paul says, you know what, masters? You know what, leaders? God expects more from you. You may not have had the expectation to treat others with value and worth and dignity, but God does. So don't see other people as resources to enrich your life. See them as image bearers of God. Do you see how revolutionary the Bible really is? And the fact that we have equal rights under the law is because of the Bible. This is about doing what's right, meaning not threatening, not taking advantage of, not using your powerful position, manipulating so that you always win, they always lose. Number two, provide what is fair. How do you treat people fairly? Again, it's not taking advantage of, it's not lording over them. And it also has to do with compensation. Are you paying them fairly? Is it equal to what somebody else of the same skill and experience is getting? Decent benefits. As Christian employees and as Christian employers, here's what God is trying to teach us. He wants His people who are in authority or under authority to act like Jesus because you know that you also have a master in heaven. Is Jesus our master? Yes. 
So we have a master. All of us has a master. How is our master toward us? Is he loving, gracious, kind, and generous? Is he fair? Absolutely. So if Jesus is your master, you can look forward to going to heaven and getting rid of all your bosses. And let's go ahead and throw in the politicians as well. They're kind of our bosses as well. Because all we'll have to deal with then is Jesus. And Jesus will always make the right decisions on your behalf for your good. Jesus is a great master. Now, some people are, fear, are fearful about becoming a Christian because they don't want Jesus to be the boss of them. Well, let me say this. Jesus is a better boss of you than you are of you. Jesus is more loving to you than you are to you. Jesus is more gracious to you than you are to you. Jesus is more forgiving of you than you are of you. Jesus is a great master, and when we call Him Lord, we are simply referring to Him as our master. So it's all about how I can represent the kingdom, and it's king, and treat others as He's treated me. I'll close with this. The Bible has rights and responsibilities for all people. Here we're reading that God wants people under authority to give their best. And He wants people in authority to provide safe, life-giving environments for others to thrive. And in the irony of ironies, our Master serves us that He lives the life that we're not living, He died the death that we should have died, and He gave us the gift that we cannot earn, that we receive this great reward and inheritance from Him because He has served us. And when we worship our Master, we are worshiping the One who in humility is also the One worthy of our worship. We hope you found this message to be encouraging. We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings. Find us on Facebook and Instagram and at bhprez.org for more information.